Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. My name is Travis Alltop. I'm the pastor of Bluegrass Pike Baptist Church in Danville, Kentucky. Briefly tell us about the members of your immediate family. I've been married to my wife, Heather, for coming up on 18 years and uh, met her in uh, Tennessee years ago. And uh, her and I have four children together. My oldest son is 14. I have a daughter that's nine. And then I have two uh, younger sons that are seven and six years old. That's uh, Hudson, Emily, Harrison, and Hamilton. And my wife's name is Heather. Considering your childhood all the way up through your teenage years, what was like life for you growing up? Um, I grew up in Northeast Ohio. It was a small town uh, called Grafton, Ohio, in Lorain County. It was a uh, it was a small town, a lot of farms and that sort of thing. We were only maybe an hour from Cleveland, Ohio. So a lot of people think of Northeast Ohio, you know, as the Cleveland area, but we right. were out in the country and and uh, it was a small town type deal. Grafton might have had a uh, a community of twenty five hundred people or so. Would you say you grew up in a Christian home, and what was family life like for you growing up? Um, I did grow up in a Christian home. Uh, my parents, from the time I was little, I can remember going to church uh, on Sundays. and We went to a missionary Baptist church there in Grafton, Ohio, Mount Pisgah Missionary Baptist Church. And my first uh, recollections of church was seeing a preacher behind the pulpit. I remember the uh, uh, the fans, you know, in the church, you get out of the back of the pew. They had the long hair right. Jesus on it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, everybody would be waving those deals. We had a sure. pastor that came once a, once a month to preach. The rest of the time, there was no pastor there. He drove up from West Virginia. Wow. But I can remember my earliest rem- memories of church were at that little missionary Baptist church in Grafton. And I can remember people going forward. And um, as a little boy, four and five years old, they would have tears on their cheeks and uh, they would, many of them were getting saved. And I didn't understand all that was going on. Sure. But I remember being concerned about why adults were crying. And then when one adult would go forward, people, other adults and their family would cry. And we would end up going down to a river um, just about a mile from that church. They had uh, outdoor baptisms. And that was interesting to observe all that. And while sure. I didn't understand yeah. the significance of what was going on, right. those were my first uh, good childhood memories. I can remember opening a hymn book. Uh, on the the uh, banks of that river, and we would sing, "Shall we gather at the river?" And I always loved that song. And yeah. I remember watching the preacher go out. I was always worried about him that he was going to slip and drown. But uh, <laughs> those are good memories. Um, later on, in in later years, we were in some different Baptist churches. But I was raised in a Christian home. Both of my parents were saved. They knew the Lord Jesus Christ. My grandfather was a Baptist preacher. I never met him. He died ten years before I was born. But my grandfather uh, pastored several small country churches in West Virginia mm-hmm. in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, he died in 1964 at the age of 48. He actually had a, wow. a heart attack while he was preaching. He finished up his message and went home and was just going to rest. But my grandmother said, you need to go to the hospital. Sure. And uh, he went there, and they got him stabilized, and he died two days later. Hmm. But uh, he was only 48 years old, but obviously what he needed to get done He got done, and he went home. Shifting into your teenage years, would you say growing up you were a rebellious teenager, or would you say you were a little more compliant? Um, I'd have to say I was a little bit of both. 
I had an understanding of what was right and wrong, and I tried to honor my parents to the sure. best of my ability. And um, I got in some trouble, but it was uh, your typical kind of trouble. I wasn't doing drugs or drinking or anything like that. Right. But uh, just uh, kind of running around having a good time. So uh, there are some things I did that I knew I shouldn't be doing this, but I also kept in mind my parents, and I didn't want to disappoint them for hmm. sure when I was a teenager. Would you care to share any funny or memorable stories from your teenage years? I can remember the first time I played high school football, and that was a big deal in that town. And I remember uh, one of the first times I ran out with the varsity team, I was an underclassman, and right. the cheerleaders are holding up one of those big circular blast through the paper, go <laughs> yeah. fight, win deals. Yeah. Right. And I wanted so bad to hit that. Problem was, everybody else did too. And so <laughs> – yeah. uh, and it ended up we just had a had a massive bottleneck, and uh, all those guys were so much bigger than I was, and I just ended up getting flattened. So it's like I just did a couple tuck and rolls and got up and kept running, pretending like I intended to do that. But uh, sure. I remember thinking from now on, I'm just going to kind of lay to the back yeah. and let the guys in the front go blasting through. <laughs> <laughs> really? Well, what sports did you play growing up, and how much time did those sports tend to take up throughout your teenage years? How much time did you dedicate to um, I played football is all, and uh, I just enjoyed that sport, and I played it from seventh grade through my senior year. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it took up a lot of time. That was a big deal you know and and yeah. had a lot of yeah. friends that played and it was a it was a lot of fun a lot of you know you learned some discipline got sure you know, that sort of thing so it, it took up a lot of time especially in the fall and the summer that sort of thing could you point to any aspect of your teenage years that you would say specifically helped to groom you and prepare you for what eventually would become your your future life as an adult i would say that uh my teenage years and the things that you experience as a teenager, that's a kind of a rough era in everybody's life. You're kind of trying to figure out who you are mm -hmm. and things can get kind of, uh, kind of vicious at that age. But I think sure. if, if one thing that I take away from that era of my life is the fact that, uh, you gotta be able to take a few lumps on the head and keep moving forward and not right. let that destroy you. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you can make the most out of, out of some difficult situations. And I remember some things that, you know, going through it, we all have stories of what went on in our teenage years and just trials and troubles that come just from everyday living right. that you learn how to work through. And I think that prepares you for real life because real life is not always going to be fair. Thing is, I had a great childhood, really. I don't have any complaints. There was difficulties that came along like with anybody. Sure. But uh, just the whole thing of just, in other words, I don't really have any regrets i don't have any sure. deep scars or nothing like that you you know we all go through some difficult things but it's like right i, I had a good childhood I, I i look i can see a lot of good things there was difficult things but i see a lot of good things right and i don't right. look at my teenage years as a oh that was a terrible period i've heard people say oh i wouldn't want to be a teenager again i had a good time and uh, and the lord was gracious to me because yeah. uh, he kept me from making some huge mistakes and he protected sure. me when I didn't even know I was being protected when my mind wasn't even on him. God was taking care of me in my teenage years. And I can look back and see that now I had no idea then, yeah. but I have a lot of good memories from back then. Was there anyone during that period of your life that really stood out as a great influence, maybe slightly more than, than the norm or that helped kind of mold you or shape you into uh, who you would go on. To I had a Sunday school teacher. Um, I was going to a church by the time I was in my teenage years, my mom was going to a, a church there uh, near where we grew up and uh, near where I grew up in Grafton. Mm -hmm. And there was a, there was a Sunday school teacher, a teen Sunday school teacher. Um, his name was Dan Simmons. And he took, uh, he took an interest in me. He would come, I would be working, had some jobs through high school. And one of the jobs I was working at the local mall, I remember him coming by just stopping in to talk with me Occasionally, he would call me on a Saturday afternoon and say, hey, you know, uh, would sure love to see you in Sunday school. I was totally unfaithful in church at that time. Sure. But I can remember him stopping, and I always appreciated that, that he took an interest in me. And and I even later on, when God called me to preach, I wrote a letter to him and uh, and told him I appreciated, uh, you know, I remember several personal meetings where we met at a restaurant or where he came to see me just mm -hmm. to try to encourage me. And I don't know why he, I, well, I know why he did it. But uh, sure. I wasn't too much. There wasn't a whole lot of fruit that he was seeing at that time. Right. But he, I look back and he made it. He definitely made an impression in my Christian life upon me for sure. The story about how you met your wife and how you two got to know each other is particularly interesting. Would you take a minute and kind of tell people how you two met, how you came to be engaged, and some of the uh, 
some of the finer details that surround that story so that they can uh, get a better understanding. I met that. my wife actually in Hayden, Alabama, the first time that I met her. And by uh, the time I was in my mid-20s, I had uh, I'd gotten interested after high school in playing music. My friends went off to college, but um, I got interested in, in acoustic music and found out that if uh, if you put your mind to it, there was a possibility of making a living playing a guitar, and that was right. what my goal was. Right, really wasn't trying to be a some kind of a star. I just wanted to be able to play that guitar, pay my bills, and enjoy seeing the country. And so I had the first job I got. There was a a lady. She had a, a record deal. She lived near Nashville. So I moved to Nashville when I was twenty three years old, and got with this group that was traveling. And so they played an outdoor amphitheater in May of nineteen ninety nine, in. Um, Hayden, Alabama. Right. And the man that was the bus driver and kind of the manager, so to speak, of this group, he had four daughters. Well, I'd met three of the daughters and they were nice, nice gals and all that. But uh, everybody kept saying, sure. you need to meet Heather. You need to meet Heather. Yeah. And uh, they said, you know, she's really smart, you know. And so you're thinking, oh, great. That's that's not a good sign <laughs> when they're really smart or when they say they have a great personality. Right. That means I'm not, I'm not going to think they're pretty. But yeah. uh, she was at that amphitheater in Hayden, Alabama, and uh, I remember that we were on the on the tour bus there, and uh, she got on the bus obviously to see her dad. And I remember as soon as I saw her, I was smitten, and I just remember thinking she's gorgeous, and uh, and you know being twenty three, twenty four years old at the time. You know, I'm just, I'm checking her out and trying to figure out what's her story. Does she have <laughs> yeah. a boyfriend? What the deal is? Well, there was a guy standing there with her and she was going to Troy State University at the time. So uh, I was kind of trying to find out, you know, who is this guy and what's his, what's his story? Turns out she didn't have a, her car was broke down or something and she couldn't get to that place. It was an hour and a half drive. So he was a friend of hers from school and he mm -hmm. had offered, she said, could you maybe drive me over there? So they were not in any kind of relationship or anything. But uh, I met her that night, and and uh, I remember even from on the stage when we played our set that evening that uh, I dedicated a song to her just yeah. to try to be Mr. Suave. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I saw her again like uh, later that month, and um, and she still denies this, but I actually went to her dad's house, and I came in. All of her sisters were there, and she was nowhere to be seen. I had just pulled in, and her mom was cooking breakfast, and she said, you want something for breakfast? And I said, sure. So I sat down. And all of her sisters were looking at each other and grinning and laughing. And I remember I said, so where's Heather at? And they said, oh, she's coming. And they were laughing. Well, she had gone and gotten a shower and had done her hair and all that stuff, which uh, was a great sign to me because I thought she cares about what she looks like when I show up. And she still denies this, but when she came in to sit down for breakfast, she sat down. There was an open chair next to me, and I thought, this is going to tell me a lot. But she sat next to me, and she still says that was the only <laughs> yeah. chair available at the table. But I think there was a second chair, and she chose to sit next to me. Yeah, so I knew yeah. things were looking up. And uh, we we got to know each other over the course of uh, the next two years. And uh, it was actually over two years that we were around each other a lot just because of what I was doing, playing in her her dad had a, a big hand in the group that I was playing in, and we were traveling. So I was always hearing about her, or I was always around her. And we got to spend a lot of time together. And um, I found out, I remember um, my sister told me, she said, be sure whoever you marry that they're a Christian. She said, you don't want to marry an unbeliever. Sure. Of course, I wasn't really into my Bible at the time, but that stuck out in my mind. So I remember being at a restaurant with her and asking her, are you are you a Christian? Are you saved? Right. And uh, she said, uh, I just got saved like the day before we first went anywhere together. Wow. And it was in July of 99 that she had been invited by a college friend who had witnessed to her there at Troy State on numerous occasions. She said she was very uncomfortable. And finally, she said, I gave in and went with her to her church service. And she got saved that night. And uh, she couldn't tell you all the you know theology behind it, but she sure. could articulate that she had received Jesus Christ as her Savior. Yeah. So that was just one more, yes, this is all coming together well. <laughs> yeah. And um Anyways, we we were together uh, for those two and a half years, and she went off and uh, during that time, and she became a flight attendant for United Airlines, right. and uh, I was still playing the music on the road. And I remember on September 10th of 2001 that she called me. I was living, rooming with a friend of mine uh, in Hendersonville, Tennessee, and on September 11th, I was scheduled to fly out and meet. Uh, by then, I was with a different group, but it was a um, a group that worked out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I had my flight ready and I was packing my bags on September 10th. I was supposed to fly out the afternoon of September 11th to Tulsa, Oklahoma, meet up with the group I was traveling with. And we had several dates to play. 
And so uh, it was September 10th. I can still remember looking at my clock that night, and she was explaining to me where all the stops that she was going to be at. Mm -hmm. She was flying for United. She was in Detroit. I knew that. Mm-hmm. But I, I never paid attention. I'm like most guys. I'm listening, going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. but I'm not really paying attention. Right. And I didn't remember what cities she said that she was going to be flying to and, and where she was going to end up. Right. So the next morning, um, I'm getting up. I'm finishing up packing, and my roommate calls me, and he said, you need to turn the TV on. So I turned the television on, and I remember seeing that first tower in the New York on fire, and I thought yeah, yeah. someone has run their plane. You know, but I didn't know it was a, you know, commercial airliner sure, and while sure. i'm watching you know the second plane comes in hits the second tower mm-hmm. so as they begin to give the play-by-play you know, because you're everybody was just kind of in shock about what's going on they said that was an american airlines flight that was a united airlines flight mm. and immediately in my heart i thought you know where is my girlfriend and <laughs> yeah. i started trying to call her couldn't yeah. get a hold of her all day watch the news I was calling everybody that knew her. Didn't hear anything until late that night. She had actually landed in Denver, mm-hmm. and they were in the air flying when all of those things were going on that was happening. And so she called me late, probably, I guess it was around midnight that night. Mm-hmm. But my roommate, Brother Jim Britton, um, I remember telling him we were sitting there watching because obviously all of the flights were canceled. There was going to be no dates to play. So sure. I was going to be at home for several days. And so I was glued to the TV for probably two days. Right. And uh, I looked at my friend and I said, you know something? I said, I really don't know what I'm doing, not asking that gal to marry me. Yeah. So if Osama bin Laden was behind all of that, I can say one <laughs> thing that he got accomplished is he he gave me the oomph uh, to ask yeah. my my girlfriend to marry me. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, when she got back uh, and we were actually together again, I, I began to put plans together. And in October, I proposed to her. She said yes, and we were married in January of 2002. In your opinion... What do you think she would say about being the wife of a pastor? And uh, you travel quite a bit, and so there, there's a lot to think about in that. So what do you think she would say about those things? Heather has always been one of my greatest assets in the ministry. Um, I've told people that she's a better Christian overall than I am. She's mm-hmm. uh, probably more uh, consistent in a lot of the little things. Mm-hmm. Um, from the very get-go, when she got saved and we started uh because at the time when she had gotten saved is when I was getting right with the Lord. I was not really walking with the Lord when I moved to Nashville and started playing music. But several things began to take place that uh, the Lord was getting my attention. Mm-hmm. And we would go to church together when we could, when I was home from being on the road. And I remember from the very beginning that uh, when we got, it was probably, um, it was before we were married that we visited Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee. Right. And uh, as we started going there, the preaching there was uh, very um, intense. And by that, I simply mean <laughs> yeah. that uh, there was yeah. really, it was very plain, over the sure. plate, waist high. You could understand it. Sure. But every time I was there, God was laying a charge at my heart's door. And it wasn't just people going through the motions. It seemed like a church full of people that were taking their Christianity seriously. And um, God was working on my heart, and I noticed while I was most consumed with myself and trying to get myself in a position where I could begin to walk with God again, I saw that that she was receiving it. And I remember mm-hmm. uh, we got home one time and we had been married for just a few months and she was in her closet and she's going through her closet and getting rid of clothes that uh, I never said a word to her. Right. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, you know, I just don't think that this kind of clothing would really be pleasing to the Lord. And she said, I just need to get rid of it. And wow. uh I never, I'd never said anything about it. I never even, I didn't even think anything about it. Sure, sure. But what the what was going on was God was dealing with her as much as He was dealing with me, and she was moldable. She was receiving it and embracing it. I mean, every Sunday there was changes the next week for both of us. Wow. And uh, when I told her several years, we'd been married. We got married in January of two thousand two, and God began to deal with me about the ministry, about preaching. Uh, in the summer of 2003, and and I announced uh, that God had directed me and had called me to preach in 2005. And when I told her that I, I believe God was going to make me a preacher, she, every time I ever told her I believe that God has wanted me to do this, or He wants me to do this, she would always be, "That's great, that's great. You need to do exactly what the Lord told you to do." Sure. She's always been very, very supportive, and it's been um, when I come home. Um, it's a blessing because it's like coming home from a battlefield to one small area where there is peace right, and tranquility right. and someone there to support you. Yeah, I've never felt oppressed or um, 
she's never been contrary to right. anywhere the Lord has led me. She's just fallen along and fallen right in place. And I say this in many of the places, and I'm not just saying it, but she is my greatest asset in the ministry because hmm. she's been um, a great supporter and she's a very much a help to sure. me in so many ways. And yeah. I, I couldn't, we wouldn't have time to go through all the things that she's a help with, but she's been very, very faithful. And uh, and she she loves the work of the Lord and she loves what she gets to do, and uh, and I'm thankful. I can remember calling from a hotel room um, when I was grappling with quitting playing music, which is what I had dreamed of doing for years. Mm-hmm. And when I knew that it was time to step out of that lifestyle, and uh, and I had no plans or no backup plan of how to pay the bills. In fact, the position I was in at the time, I was making good money and paying all of my bills and really enjoying what I got to do. And all my friends and family were cheering me on and saying, you're doing what you set out to do. You're, you're, that's great. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I'd, I'd tasted some success in what I had planned on doing. And when I called her and said, I can't do this anymore. And I don't know what I'm going to do for my living. I'm going to get a job and pay the bills with whatever I can do, but I cannot continue to travel on the road and miss church. And, uh, Mm-hmm. And it's just time to quit. And when I told her that, I was kind of fearful. What kind of response am I going to get? Sure. Once again, she told me, if the Lord told you you need to quit, then that's what you need to do. And I had no plan. I had enough money in the bank to pay my bills for about one and a, one month, maybe two. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm probably stretching it to say I had two months worth of money saved up. I had about a month worth. Yeah. And what was amazing, we sold everything we had in order to pay all the bills and and stay keep our head above water, but yeah. the Lord just opened some doors as soon as I took that step of faith. But I've never had static from her, and that's a huge blessing. I heard right. Dr. B. R. Lakin say one time, many a preacher's life was ruined the day he got married, mm. and I, I don't say that to uh, uh, belittle marriage. That's a blessing from God. It's of sure. Lord, He that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. But I just know this that uh, it's a blessing when you're help me that's cheering you on yeah. and not trying to throw shoulder blocks on you every time the Lord moves you. You've touched on this briefly already, but at what point in your life did music really begin to play a major role? And you've kind of dabbled in it a little bit, but can you give us some more detail? The music in my life, I was raised around all kinds of music. My sisters had record albums of all kinds of music. My dad listened to different kinds of music. And I've loved music from the time I was three or four years old. I used to had a wiffle ball bat with a piece of yarn that I would put around it, sling it over my shoulder and stand in front of a full-length mirror, put a record on and <laughs> yeah. imitate whatever artist I was listening to as right, a three, right. four, five, six-year-old boy. And uh, my dad got me guitar when I was six. And that's always been something that's been a huge interest and hobby. And, and he taught me basic chords and some guitar runs when I was six and seven, eight years old. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, when I was little, even I remember performing at some places, you know, where uh, an acoustic music group, bluegrass group, would have me come up and play, right. and uh, and I always enjoyed that. Sure. And I played throughout high school. I got really interested in bluegrass style music and bluegrass guitar playing. Right after high school, I went to a bluegrass festival in Columbus, Ohio, and I saw um, some professional groups like Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver and the Tony Rice Unit and different people that really to see it done professionally and done it on that scale, right. it just grabbed my heart. It was like, they talk about getting bit right. by the bluegrass bug and that was me. Yeah. And so then I, I began to really take that seriously and began to even pursue it as a way of making a living. And that was when I was 18, 19 years old. And so uh, within a few years, um, I had met some people and and made some contacts from some people. And that's of course, uh, when I was called to come down to uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And that's when I, I lived there. Sure. And sure. then I ended up moving to Hendersonville during that first year. And um, and so I spent about three years traveling on the road with groups and was able to make a living doing that. And I met a lot of people and got to experience a lot of fun things and 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 did some things. I, probably for me, personally, what one of the highlights for me during that era of my life was I was uh, asked to, uh, a guy I had played music with when I first came down there for two and a half years, his name was Andy Leftwich, Mm-hmm. Still a good friend of mine. He was uh, the fiddle player. He was only 16, 17 years old when I met him. Right. He's just a phenomenal musician. He's what I would call a master musician. And it's it's a, it's a blessing to get to play with good musicians if, sure. if you're a, a musician. But to play with a master musician, you rarely get that opportunity. Right, right. And that's what I was getting to do was get to play with a, with a an unbelievably gifted young man. Well, he ended up uh, leaving the group that I was in 
in uh, 2001, early 2001, he, he mm-hmm. uh, hired on with Ricky Skaggs in Kentucky Thunder. Mm-hmm. So one of the first times they played the Grand Old Opera, he called me. He said, look, I can get a guest backstage. Why don't you come and spend the evening with us, and I'll introduce you to everybody. Well, uh, Ricky Skaggs was in you know, in a secular sense, he's a hero of mine because sure. he plays the kind of bluegrass that I'd heard growing up. My dad always loved him and I've always enjoyed his music. So we met that night and uh, I brought my guitar. And so in between sets at the Opry, Andy and I would sit around playing because we played music together for two and a half years. Right. And right. so during that time, Ricky came to me and he said, uh, you know, my guitar player is going to be missing some Friday and Saturday night Opry spots. And I need, I need someone that I can call on. Would you be willing to come and and set in with us at the Opry. And so I was able to do that over the summer of 2001. I um, guested with them several times, and that was a real special thing for me. I called my dad, and my dad had always listened to the Grand Old Opry. And so I remember uh, the first night that I played there with everyone, um, Dad, Mom told me later that Dad had uh, driven out to this farm field where you can get 650 WSM, came in clearer. Yeah, and she yeah. said he had attached, you know, the uh, tenfold to the antenna of the cassette player had cleaned <laughs> yeah. the heads on the cassette player, had fresh yeah. batteries in the cassette player and a brand new cassette tape because he wanted to record the opera spot when Skaggs yeah. came on. And so that was a big deal um, for me. And it was a, it was a highlight of that era in my life, you know? Sure. And sure. so I, I enjoyed that. Music has always been a huge deal. I love music. Um, love it so much that it could even be a weak place for me. I have to guard myself right. because right. I like a lot of kinds of music. How many hours per day would you say you you dedicated to learning to play the guitar until you got to the place where you knew that you were proficient and that you had maybe arrived to kind of a professional level. How much time did you put into that? The time I put into playing guitar, especially when I got serious about where I had a goal that I was going after, which was to be good enough to be hired on somewhere and make some money doing it. Sure. Um, I would spend sometimes uh, six, seven, eight hours a day with a guitar Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people talk about, you know, boy, you have to force yourself to practice. Not me. I loved it so much. Um, I would go to bed with headphones <laughs> yeah. on my head and that music would be playing in my ears all night. I'd get sure. up and there was a guitar stand by the bed. I'd have a guitar in my hands get when, before I left for work. When I mm-hmm. came home from work, I'd pick it up and I was looking for any excuse to have that guitar in my hands. And there was times, you know, when I was still living at home and playing so much, Mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, I'd have CDs queued up and be playing to those CDs and learning new things. And um, I remember a couple of times where my mom opened the bedroom door and said, okay, can you take a break for like an hour? <laughs> yeah. Because she says, I can't, I can't take no more. <laughs> and uh, she can just be thankful that it was an electric guitar that right, I was playing yeah. her drums. Yeah. But uh, it was an acoustic guitar. And uh, I just, I just was just absolutely devoted to it because mm-hmm. I loved it and I had a goal and I enjoyed it. And, um, uh, and so it was a huge part at that era of my life. It was a huge deal in my life. You made it into the professional music scene. Was that life difficult to give up? And can you explain some of the difficulties, some of the choices you had to make? Um, when the Lord began dealing with me um, about leaving the music scene and stopping the ladder that I was trying to climb, it was a little um, it was a little intimidating. Sure. Um, partly because uh, I wasn't so afraid of leaving the music as I was. What are people going to think? You mm-hmm. know, my family's cheering me on and people are excited about supposedly the success that I'm having. Mm-hmm. But during that time, um, after hearing some Bible believing preaching, God began to deal with my heart. And I remember one of the things that sticks out is I was uh, uh, during the time when I was playing, I was on the bus. And one of my favorite times in the evening as God mm-hmm. was dealing with my, my heart during that era of my life, I remember that when we were finished playing a show, we'd finish maybe 11, 1130 at night, midnight. We would do loadout. We would go back. The bus would go back to the hotel, the Holiday Inn, wherever we were staying. Mm-hmm. And I remember you'd get cleaned up, and then you had to be back out at the bus by 2 a.m. And then right. everybody went to bed. The bus driver would drive you to the next town. You'd wake up 1 to 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You'd have a hotel key on the front lounge table. You'd go in. They told you when load-in was going to be, and you just did that over and over. Well, I remember that my favorite time of the day or night or morning, whatever it was, was when Mm -hmm. I got out of that hotel and everybody went to sleep and it was quiet. Mm -hmm. I would get in that bunk and I would open my Bible and I'd start reading and I'd have cassette tapes with a headset. And I started listening again to to straight ahead what the world would call 
fire and hellfire and damnation preaching. <laughs> yeah. But I was yeah. so hungry for the truth that I would listen. And I remember uh, laying in that bunk and weeping, listening mm. to that preaching. And I remember specifically, um, I remember specifically a message on the judgment seat of Christ. Sure. And I had never really heard all about what's coming. I knew I was saved. I'd gotten saved as an eight-year-old boy in Grafton, Ohio. God had dealt with my heart about my sin. Mm-hmm. I felt guilty. And I the first Bible verse I ever learned was John 3, 16, you know, for God so loved the world. And I was able to quote that at a vacation Bible school. And as God dealt with me, I finally asked my Sunday school teacher, what, what do I have to do to be saved? And I remember that morning calling on the Lord Jesus Christ and asking him to save me and be my sure. Savior. Sure. And I remember that if someone says, how do you feel? Well, I put my faith in Jesus Christ and I realized salvation is, is faith in Christ. And we always are quick to say salvation is not in feelings. And that's true. However, mm-hmm. uh, real salvation, uh, you feel something. And I, I felt clean. I felt fresh. I felt new. And I didn't know all the theology behind it, but I got saved as a young man. Uh, by the time I'm 27 years old, I really don't know what the Bible says because I've never been in a church that really preached it to me. I've never hung <laughs> right. around a church long enough to learn anything, and I've never read my Bible much. Right. I knew about salvation. Mm-hmm. And when I hear about the judgment seat of Christ, that my life as a Christian is going to, I'm going to give an account. And uh, and I began to think about that. And I thought, okay, Jesus Christ bought me with a price. And mm-hmm. I'm doing what I want to do, what I've always planned on doing. And I've got plans and I'm even having some success at executing those plans. Mm-hmm. But then I began to think about one day I'm going to die right. and I'm going to give an account. And uh, that began to trouble me. And, and I began to think on those things. And a lot of people around me didn't even know what was going on in my mind. Mm-hmm. But I would go to church at Cornerstone Baptist when I could. And I would hear that preaching and my heart was just busting. And and the the desire of my heart became... I want to get in church and I want to serve God. I want to do something. Uh, I love sure, music, sure, but I don't love it. So I, I'm I'm finding that I love the Lord Jesus and I love this Bible more than I love my feeble, weak plans. Hmm, yeah. And I couldn't articulate all that to people, but I knew what was going on in my heart. And I can remember uh, even still, uh, sometimes I get choked up thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But I remember being in hotel rooms when we'd have a day off and we would stay maybe two or three days at one hotel. And I would go through the channel looking for any religious channel. I, I mean, I didn't even care if I found a a, a, a woman Pentecostal preacher. If she could <laughs> shell the corn, I'd listen to her. Amen. I just, I wanted to hear somebody talking about Jesus Christ. I wanted to hear right, somebody right. challenging me. I remember being in hotel rooms and and even getting to the place where I would pray and weep and say, how do I... How do I back out of this where I'm at? Right. Um, I wasn't when I was playing music on the road. I wasn't involved in drugs or alcohol. Like I say, it was not that was not my purpose of being out there. I wasn't in some deep outward defilement. I just realized I've got a decision to make. Am I going to live my life under the direction of the one who died for me and rose from the right. dead right. and bought me with a price, yeah. or am I going to continue to plow through life doing what I think I want to do? And then show up at the end of life and go off into eternity having wasted my time here. And I knew that it was that series of a decision. And I got to the place where I didn't care about being on the road anymore. Um, I didn't care about making the next step, making the next connection. What I cared about was I wanted to get home to Tennessee. um, And I wanted to get in church all the time at Cornerstone Baptist Church. Mm -hmm. And I can remember specifically a, a... a story comes to mind just now. I was in Los Angeles. We played in Los Angeles. And then the next night we played in Hollywood. And um, that was a kind of a, even for me, uh, that was kind of a culture shock, you know. And uh, some of the things that I saw and, and heard, even in the middle of the afternoon, I went out uh, to get a cup of coffee and a sandwich one afternoon. Mm-hmm. And I got back to the hotel and I picked the phone up and I called Brother Jim Britton and I said, would you please pray for me? I said that I can get out of this part of the country and get home. I said, all I care about, man, I just want to get to that little church on the hillside in Carthage and I want to, yeah. I want to hear preaching. I want to sing those hymns and I want to, I want to have this behind me. Mm-hmm. I want this part of my life in the rearview mirror. And finally, um, as God led me along, it became obvious if I was going to follow the will of God, the first step of faith that I was going to have to take was quit my job on the road. Sure. I had no backup plan. I had no 
why do you need a backup plan if you're doing what you want to do? But I remember that uh, the the group I was with, the man I was playing for at the time, um, we had been out for over 30 days straight, and we played um, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, at the University of Arkansas on a Thursday night. Mm-hmm. And before that show, uh, the next night on Friday night, we were playing in St. Louis at a theater. Well, before that show on Thursday night, I remember uh, I went out in the area where all the college kids, you know, have their dorms in different places. And I was just walking in that neighborhood and praying and saying, God, right. please give me the courage to do what I know I need to do. Yeah. Because when you're traveling in a group on a bus, if you got four or five guys, you got a sound man, you got a bus driver, everybody's got a job to do and you kind of become a working unit. And if one one dynamic changes, it it's it affects everybody. And I really didn't want to do that to anybody, but mm-hmm. I knew what I needed to do. And as I prayed, I was begging God, please, please help me. I, I want to quit. I want to go home, but this is going to take some courage. And I walk around the corner and my boss is coming down the street toward me. <laughs> and he says, hey, I was I wondered where you were at. He said, let's get a bite to eat. Yeah. And he stops and he looks at me. Well, I'd been in deep prayer and I probably, I don't know how I looked, but he looked at me and he said, what's What's going on? Are you all right? I said, yeah. And before I could say anything else, he said, you're fixing to quit, aren't you? <laughs> as soon as he said that, I, I jumped. I mean, the doors just kicked wide open. Sure. I said, yes. Yeah. And he said, okay, I know what the problem is. You haven't gotten a raise. You've been here over. He goes, man, you need a raise. We've been out yeah. a long time. I'm ups- I'm sorry. I don't keep up with this. I said, and it's not about the money. I said, it's about I want to get home. And I said, I don't care if I'm flipping burgers at, uh, at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. I want to go to church, and I can't go to church. I can't get in a local church. I can't learn my Bible. And so it was pretty uh, intense for the next couple of days on that bus because it was not, it wasn't pleasing to him. Sure. And I'll never forget the the handful of purpose the Lord gave me. We got to St. Louis. It was a terrible. That night was intense. The next day was pretty tense among everybody on the bus. And we got to St. Louis, and when we did load in there. Uh, the monitor that was in the front of the stage that I was getting on had a gospel track on it. And it was my search for peace from Brother Earl Ankrum. Wow. And I had just met Brother Earl Ankrum two months before at Cornerstone. Yeah. And I saw that and I picked it up and I said, I know this guy. Yeah. I don't know how it got there, but it was on my monitor. Wow. And that was like, that was just the Lord saying, just keep moving forward. Yeah. And I was willing to work out a 30 day notice with this man. I didn't want to leave them high and dry. You don't, you know. I said, look, I'll work out 30 days. I can even give you some names of people that might take my place. And he was frustrated. And uh, he said, no, I don't want you out here for 30 days. If you don't want to be out here, I don't want you with us. Mm -hmm. So he said, "Uh, we're getting you a ticket. We've already bought you a ticket. You're going to stay at the Holiday Inn after the show Friday night. You're flying home to Nashville Saturday morning, which I didn't say, but that my heart was leaping for joy. And I remember when the bus dropped me off at the Holiday Inn there in St. Louis that I stood there with my suitcase and a guitar and a ticket. And I remember waiting. I stood there and watched that bus, the taillights pull out. I'm like, get on the interstate, just go. <laughs> and yeah. uh, those guys hadn't done anything to me wrong. Sure, they were just doing sure. their job. But it was just, it was my stepping off place. I got right. a taxi the next morning, went to the St. Louis airport. And when that plane lifted off for Nashville, uh, I remember it was like a, just a load came off. It was like getting saved all over again. The burden was gone. Mm-hmm. And I had called a friend of mine who had, had suggested a couple years before I had worked for him off and on when, when the, uh, work was slow. And he said, if you ever want me to teach a drywall, I will. And I called him. I said, look, do you think you could put me to work, you know, at least as close to full time as possible? Mm-hmm. He said, sure, man. He said, you come down and I'll teach you how to do drywall. Well, he found out real quick that my drywall talent was lacking. So they <laughs> set me to uh, sanding with the Mexicans. And uh, But I sanded yeah. drywall and I didn't care. I had a flannel shirt wrapped around my face. All I knew is that Wednesday at 3.30, I'm leaving out of here. And I'm going home and I'm getting cleaned up and I'm going to church. And on Sunday, I don't work. I'm going to be in Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night. And mm-hmm. that is the pivot point where my life took a different direction. A lot of people around me didn't understand. Some even questioned my motives. Sure. Some, uh, you know, said I, w- I was foolish for what I was doing. But mm-hmm. in my heart, I knew I was doing what God wanted me to do. And while he didn't tell me what the next step in the plan was, uh, the way to walk with God is he shows you the first step. And if you'll take that step by faith, then he'll show you the second step. Right. And from there, he'll give you the third and the fourth. He's not going to show you the whole blueprint and get your approval on it. It's going to be, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to unroll the blueprint yeah. this far. Will you do this much? Yeah. And I remember that the it was just a, it was a glorious time because church was just popping with life. I came in looking for, I, I couldn't wait. 
Mm -hmm. I'd never read through my Bible at that time. The first thing I was told by some other good men in that church, I said, have you ever read your Bible all the way through? I said, no. They said, that's the first thing you've got to do. Got to know, how can you be a Christian and tell people you believe the Bible if you've never even read it through? You don't even know what it says. Mm -hmm. So the first job was I'm reading through it. And and the the, the amazing thing is I'm so excited. I'm, for lack of a better term, I'm proud of myself. I'm reading through my Bible, but I'm (laughs) sitting there going, I didn't know that was in the Bible. And I always thought that this was the truth. And you find out how many cliches that you had, yeah. had adopted in your mind. Yeah. And it was so liberating to read through that Bible and then come in and hear it preached. And man, it was just, it was a glorious time of just revival in my own heart. And my wife and I, and both of us were there and we're sitting on the second pew and that preaching was transforming our lives. And it was a glorious time. And I never, somebody says, do you miss it? The answer is absolutely not. Because what I had entered into I wasn't even thinking about what I had been doing and my puny plans. Um, I wasn't, nobody got up and said, you've got to quit playing music. It's wicked. It was just in my heart. I want to get in church. I want to find out what's next. What do I mm-hmm. do next? And mm-hmm. I don't want to waste my life right. chasing my plans and dreams that I've concocted. I want to do what God wants me to do. And the local church was where it was at. And that season of life still brings a smile to my face. I can remember sitting on the second pew uh, on the middle right section and looking up, I mean, I was close enough. It was like, you know, when you go to SeaWorld, and they give you that plastic to cover, you know, when Shamu splashes. I felt like <laughs> yeah. I needed plastic. The kind of preachers that were coming in, I needed to cover yeah. myself because the spit was a flying. And right. But it was a blessing, man. And when we'd yeah. stand up and sing, that church sang out. It was the first church I was in where the roof just was coming off the place. Mm-hmm. And it was, and all the church family there was so friendly, so encouraging. Man, it's good to see you. Yeah. I remember on a Wednesday night prayer meeting being there and, they would, uh, the, the tradition they had there is the men would come forward and kneel at the altar and pray. And mm-hmm. uh, Brother Ralph would call on a few men to pray and, and then close them in prayer before Bible study. And there was this older gentleman uh, who I thought a lot of. His brother, his name was Brother Noel DeLozier. And uh, he was he only lived nine months after I met him. He had a, it was a farming accident that took his life. But mm-hmm. those first few months there, he was a pillar in that church. And I knelt next to him at the altar. And I'll never forget him looking at me and he stuck his hand out and he said, you know something I'm glad for? He said, I'm glad God brought you and your wife here. Yeah. And I remember my heart was just, I'm thinking, man, these people are <laughs> yeah. like right right on the level of being almost angels. These people are awesome. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was a great time of my life. Now, you've, you've referenced it multiple times, but could you take a few minutes and maybe go into specific detail about how you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ? As I mentioned earlier, that uh, my Christian upbringing, I had seen uh, in Baptist churches people being saved and began to hear the uh, the terminology, if you will. But uh, what really began to deal with me was uh, I was probably, I remember being six and seven and eight years old, and I would not have known what to call it then, but I know now that you would call it conviction, right. which is simply where you begin to think soberly about you, yourself, and about God, and about eternity. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember thinking on that many times about how does a person get saved? And I remember uh, a man asked me one time when I told him that I was born again when I was eight years old that I got saved. He said, you mean you thought you were a sinner at eight years old? And I said, no, I didn't think I was. I knew I was right. because God had shown me. Yeah. And as I look back, I remember the guilt that I felt came because I had deceived my parents. I would, in order to get out of trouble, I would lie. It's mm-hmm. a breaking of the ninth commandment. Yeah. When you do that to your parents, you're breaking the fifth commandment because you're not honoring them. You're not obeying them. Right. So those things stuck with me if I was nasty to my sisters. I remember that guilt was in there. And my mom used to love to watch uh, the Billy Graham Crusades on TV. And I, I hated that because I didn't know why other than when I heard him preach, you know, uh, say what you will about Billy Graham. I understand all the people's different opinions about his ministry, but he preached the gospel and there's power in the gospel. Right. And I remember that uh, there was two reasons I hated to know that there was going to be a five-day Monday through Friday crusade on is we were going to watch him every night. It meant it knocked me out of the Dukes of Hazard on Friday night at 8. But ultimately, <laughs> I couldn't help but catch bits and pieces of his preaching. And one particular sermon that I can recall that troubled my heart uh-huh. was the fact that he said that uh, the rich man died, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, and he preached about how that the rich man had a great memory. Mm-hmm. And that night I went to bed, just that little section of that sermon, I laid in bed that night thinking about if I die in my sins and I go to hell. And I just believed what the Bible said. Nobody had to convince me the Bible was true. And as I lay there, I thought, I'm going to remember all of this life. I'm going to remember my family, and I'm going to remember, I'm going to have memory. And that's that's that's, her, that's a horrific thought. 
Sure. And I knew I was guilty. And I never looked at God as some kind of a tyrant. I thought if I went there, I would deserve to go there. Hmm. And uh, but I learned John three sixteen, which says, "For God so loved the world that He gave the His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life." Mm-hmm. That was the first Bible verse that I memorized. Mm-hmm. And I remember the man who pointed me to Jesus Christ used that verse in his presentation. I raised my hand in the middle of the lesson in the Sunday school class, and I said, uh, "My Sunday school teacher at the time was Brenda Borowski," and uh, I said what would I have to do to be saved? Well, the other saved <laughs> yeah. kids in the class were all cheering, going way to yeah. go and all this. And sure. she took me outside the class and her husband came and we went in an empty Sunday school room and he opened the Bible. I don't remember all the verses he showed me. I used to worry about, oh, what what did I pray? It doesn't matter about the verses he showed me and it doesn't matter about the prayer that I prayed. Mm-hmm. It matters that I look to Jesus Christ in faith. And I remember that uh, the peace of God flooded my heart Mm-hmm. And they, uh, the way they did it in that, it was a Southern Baptist church, a Grafton Road Baptist church, and they would uh, bring you out front at the close of service, and they, they'd say, this is, you know, this is Travis, and Travis called on the Lord today and, and got saved. And so they would come by and give you the right hand of fellowship. So I remember standing there in the church coming by, and it's funny the things you remember because I tell this everywhere I go that, uh, you know, the little old ladies were grabbing your face and kissing your cheek. And I just remember those wet, prickly kisses. Yeah. And uh, my mom came up at the end and and she got down at tears in her eyes and she said, you've done the greatest thing you'll ever do in this life. Yeah. And I'm proud of you. Yeah. And I remember that just my heart just busting with joy and peace going, this is great. And I, I theologically, obviously you don't know what you're, what all is entailed in that. It's years later that you read and go, oh, this is what God did. But I knew I was a sinner. I knew I was guilty. And I knew Jesus Christ was the Savior of sinners. Mm-hmm. The best I knew how as an eight-year-old, I looked to him, I called upon him, and he saved me. Sure. And uh, even in the years, in my teenage years, when I was not in church and was not living for God and was was messing with the things that the flesh draws you to and the world tantalizes you with, mm-hmm. even during those times, as I look back, someone says, well, how do you know you were saved if you lived such a such a life away from God and so backslidden as a teenager. Uh-huh. And I can answer that real easily that uh, I never could enjoy sin. Never could I enjoy sin. When I was in a, in a place with my friends where sin was going on, even if I was not partaking in what was taking place. Sure. Um, I can remember, I'll just tell you, I've used it as an illustration before. I remember in my later years as a, um, after high school, being at a college party with my friends and there was people all around. There was a young lady sitting to the right of me. Might have been sitting on my lap, if I recall. Mm-hmm. And I remember that she said, you don't look like you're having a good time. Mm-hmm. And I just blurted out, I am not. I said, I'm a Christian. I'm not even supposed to be here right now. Sure, yeah. And uh, she got up and left. <laughs> and uh, I remember an, a person who overheard me. They said, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard in a time like this. <laughs> right. And I just got up and I did. I left and I went back uh, to an apartment where my friends uh-huh. were uh, living at the time. Yeah. And I drove home the next day miserable. And as I look back on that, um, I didn't understand all of what was taking place, but I get it now. Yeah. Because if you're one of his, if you truly are, according to Hebrews 12, if you truly are a son and not a bastard, mm-hmm. God will chasten you. Yeah. And that yeah. was the chastening hand of my heavenly father. And I didn't even know that then, but I'm sure thankful for it now. Mm-hmm. And you cannot grieve the Holy Spirit of God in you and get away with it. He's not right. going to let you mess with sin. Right. So those times of my life that I'm not proud of and I do not glorify or even get into the details of, I still know there was there was evidence that I was a born again Christian mm-hmm. because I was uh, there was someone on the inside that says you can't do this anymore and you can't even you're not even supposed to be here. And so while it was miserable then, I praise God for it now. So from a professional musician playing guitar on the road to then settling in Carthage at Cornerstone Baptist Church. From there, how did you end up in the ministry? It seems some men got all the talent. The rest of us are left to admire the talented. But what good is that talent if it's not used for the intended purpose of pleasing the God that gave it? Travis Alltop had many options before him. He chose service to Jesus Christ. Come back next Friday to learn more about this faithful servant. And as always, thank you for listening, and God bless.
hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.